from Buffalo Toronto Public Media and WBFO. This is Buffalo What's Next Producers Picks, highlights of our weekly discussion on race, segregation, and our shared humanity. Coming up. The Magnus School Booming 30 in the city of Buffalo was uh, an effort to stem so much of the white flight. Challenger sports columnist Greg Brown with his own history, Bob Lanier, Bennett High, and education in Buffalo. Also, activist Charlie Fisher. What's happening on the east side of Buffalo does have an impact on transit, does have an impact on Main Street, does have an impact in Williamsville and other places. Reverend Kaiser Pointer is here, and University at Buffalo sociologist Ashley Barr. Racial discrimination not only erodes health, your own and your romantic partners, but also can erode the actual relationship. I'm Thomas O'Neill White. Thanks for being with us. We begin with Greg Brown the sports columnist for the Challenger newspaper, talking some history with Jay Moran. A Bennett High School graduate, as a matter of fact. We go Tigers. You go Tigers, and of course just won the state football championship. But when you were there, you were a teammate of Bob Lanier, the NBA, the Basketball Hall of Famer, the probably, I would say, the greatest athlete to come out of Buffalo. That would be my opinion. I suppose we could start a whole debate on that. I would share that opinion. Yeah, what was it like, uh, like during those times with Bob Lanier? I have, I'm telling you well, about it. Let me make it perfectly clear that uh, I had nothing to do with those great, great bit of high teams. I mean, I at best uh, carried Bob's duffel bag. <laughs> uh, but I was on the team. I was there. So it's something that uh, over the years uh, gives me uh, a lot of pride and joy. What was it like? Uh, back in those days, uh, Bennett High School, our basketball team at least, we felt like we were the UCLA of high school basketball. Certainly around here we were. You're a sports fan, so you'll know that uh, in those days, John Wooden and uh, his legendary UCLA basketball teams with Lou Alcindor, a.k.a. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, and all those other great players were always winning uh, national titles. And, you know, we uh, at Bennett for those last two years uh, of Bob's uh, tenure, Bennett was, uh, we were the standard. So it was great to be a part of that. What kind of person was Bob in here? What uh, just took on? Now, obviously, you knew him when he was just a teenager. We all changed from our teen years, don't we, Greg, to uh, where we are as adults. But what was Bob like? Interesting. Bob was a smart guy, uh, you know, as a student. And I don't think he was a good student. Bob, I would say, if I can make an assessment looking back that far, uh, I'd say Bob was probably a little bit on the immature side. Uh, he was uh, a playful guy, uh, could be a little silly, but he was also Bob Lanier. He had gifts that uh, only God can give. One of the pivotal moments, I think, in Bob's high school career in his life, really, was when he was cut from the basketball team out his sophomore year at Bennett. It impacted him enormously. And in probably in many respects, hindsight may have been a good thing because he and everyone knows this story well, everyone who follows Bob knows this story, is that uh, after being cut from the Bennett team, he redoubled his work at the Master Boys Club, where we all sorted were booty. And uh, there was a gentleman at the Master Boys Club, a uh, great teacher, leader, uh, Mr. Laurie Alexander. He worked with Bob over that uh, winter basketball season. And one of the, uh, I think, end products of that, besides Bob just improving his game, was the fact that uh, he got some maturity about him. So when he came back to, uh, you know, that, that season with a new coach at Bennett, uh, he was Bob Lanier. You know, he, he, was, he was almost, well, he wasn't the finished product, but he was Big Buck. 
switching a little bit away from sports, but it's interesting how you describe that Bennett, basically a neighborhood school, right? And yeah, people down neighborhood schools, there was a lot of people's neighborhood school. And the neighborhood school was like sort of a gerrymandered map, you know, like, again, a little of this and a little of that. Right. And that's what Bennett had, a right. little of this and a little of that. And then, of course, magnet schools, segregation, things changed. Yeah, they did. Any uh, thoughts about that, whether that has been for the better or for the worst? I think it's been a mixed bag. You know, when, I, when you talk about, you know, the magnet school movement uh, and what sort of uh, underlay that uh, magnet school movement, certainly in the city of Buffalo, was uh, an effort to stem so much of the white flight that uh, was affecting Buffalo uh, back in that late 70s, early 80s period when these magnet school programs were, uh, were envisioned and then created. The City Honors Program came out of the Bennett High School Honors Program. They took the Bennett High School Honors Program, lock, stock, and barrel, all of the faculty, all of the curriculum sort of development that they had had from running an honors program for many, many years at Bennett, which is one of the things that made Bennett one of the premier high schools in the area. Uh, they took that program, as I say, lock, stock, and barrel, put it into uh, a new facility in Faldy City Honors. You know, by and large, I think City Honors has been uh, a very uh, worthwhile and worthy uh, public school institution. But when you took it out of Bennett High School, I think you took a lot of the heart and character out of the bit. You paid Peter, you robbed a call. And I don't know that Bennett ever really, as an institution, recovered from the demographic changes and then the loss of uh, that I think, essential component of its program. It's the thing that made Bennett special and different in the same way that City Honors is special and different. So, uh, you know, having City Honors, my daughter attended City Honors, uh, you know, I, uh, I feel in some ways uh, connection to it. I was in the Honors program uh, at least one of my years at Bennett. I got out of it. I didn't want to work that hard, <laughs> and I wanted to play sports. Right. And, you know, being in the honors program was uh, something that would have required more time than I wanted to devote. But, you know, Bennett was such a good school. You know, you could get a good education at Bennett regardless of what so-called track you read. You know, I was in a college entrance track. Anybody who's at Bennett, you know, you were pretty assured of getting, you know, a competent education, certainly in uh, terms of, you know, what we see in debt. The black community of Buffalo, again, maybe reflecting a time from your youth, your young adult age, to where it is now. Any thoughts about how it's changed? What has changed? I don't know. Sometimes it's been, a, I think, a story of uh, two steps forward, one step backwards, or two steps backwards and one step forward. In many ways, you know, one can argue that, uh, you know, we... Uh, have not shared in Buffalo or the region's general revive, maybe being left behind by that. Not everybody, but, you know, large enough segments of the population that uh, they become uh, politically and demographically and economically significant. Um, and that is, you know, public education has not served well the, uh, the children of Buffalo uh, within the public schools. And I think that the longer you have ineffectual public education, the more difficult and the more intractable 
social and political problems become because you know you're not producing the kind of uh, citizens and leaders to really uh, you know propel the community and that's what I'm feeling you know and not that there are not young people leaders and such but uh, I, I I don't see big difference and frankly I think in many respects 1967 was uh, maybe politically socially economically a, a better period of time for black buffalo. When it comes to opinions, though, and we like to give people opportunity on this program, do just that. And we can focus on the negative force and the problems and the issues. I think you've outlined some of them very well. At the same time, you live in the University District, if I'm not mistaken now, and you grew up in the city of Buffalo. So there's something special about that community for you, I would think. What, outline that for me. Talk to me about that. <clears throat> what makes it special? Uh, I've lived in a few other places. Uh, you know, West Coast, East Coast, uh, you know, Rochester. Um, and one of the things that uh, I feel I have taken from my Buffalo growing up experience uh, is that uh, resilience and that, you know, feeling like, you know, you can rise to any occasion. You know, because you grew up, uh, you know, in, in, in Buffalo. You know, Buffalo makes you do some things. You know, when winter comes, your butt better be ready. When, uh, you know, football season comes, you better be ready for a heartbreak. But, you know, bu- Buffalo, I think, you know, hardens one. I think it makes one uh, able to cope with just about any situation one will find anywhere else. And uh, when you've, you know, when you've grown up in Buffalo and played your Buffalo Blues, I think you're ready. I think you're ready for challenge. Former Assistant U.S. Attorney Greg Brown is the sports columnist at the Challenger newspaper. Up next, Charlie Fisher, the former city councilman, is with Dave Debo. Talk to me about what you think right now is, especially in light of the shootings, obviously, the biggest need on Buffalo's east side. Well, you know, Dave is a passage from the Meta Nature uh, book of tradition that says, our history begins with the words and actions that we take today. So May 14th is a moment in time that uh, we will never forget, but it, it lends opportunity for us to really look going forward as a area, as a people, as a community, what do we do? And I think on the east side of Buffalo, at the 150,000 or so African-Americans uh, in a metropolitan area of a million people, really has to take stock of what can be done, what's our potential, what we can do. And I think it's a great opportunity as we make uh, lemonade from the lemons, the tragedy, the terrible occurrence on May 14th. It's a great opportunity today, though, for Buffalo's East Side to uh, do the things that it needed to do to move forward. And what I saw was a tremendous coming together a thousand spider webs tie up a lion. And I saw a thousand spider webs tackle this line of supremacy, right, and division. It could be the opportunity uh, for us to move forward like never before. I, I think some of the analysis that I've seen shows that certainly it brought a pre existing tight knit community more closely together. Did it have the kind of impact beyond the East Side? that could generate change. Absolutely, it did. Uh, you know, this idea of the city of good neighbors, 
it demonstrated something uh, that I never thought I would see. And, and I think that it did show that all of West New York is tied into this. We're all of, impacted by this. And I think Buffalo showed the nation really what it's made of. And I think it, it lends for the opportunity to do some things that we couldn't have done before. We can do now. Like what? Well, first of all, the harnessing of all of the communities of Buffalo. I mean, there are 42 municipalities or governments, 28,000 villages and cities, a uh, region that really began in 1789 with a black man, Joseph Hodge, settling here, an explorer. And, uh, you know, something that wound up giving the nation the NAACP. Well, this area here, Buffalo, always was a leader in terms of positive relations. So I saw us moving together, uh, uniting, bringing people from Eden and, and Grand Island and from all over this area here to right on Jefferson Avenue. And I think uh, there's nothing we can accomplish with, uh, with us coming together. I wonder, though, you, you speak a little bit about regionalism, and I know that, that different governments have certainly tried that and talked about that. But I think some of the resistance to it is has been postulated that, forgive me, and, and I, I'll pick on them generically, the parents in East Aurora or the parents in Orchard Park don't want to merge into a government that would send their resources to places that they don't want them to go. Well, that's true. That is a very, very clear. Uh, the mayor of Eden said, over my dead body will we cease to be. Uh, we're never going to merge. That was a proposal under County Executive Joel Giambra, right. who uh, proposed to bring all the governments together. Uh, some places in America have done that, but regionalism doesn't have to be just uh, merging a bunch of governments. It can be merging the resources and thinking more uh, collectively about moving forward as Buffalo, not so much as the uh, city of Buffalo, but the whole region. And I think we can uh, do that. So people really realize that what's happening on the east side of Buffalo does have an impact on transit, does have an impact on Main Street, does have an impact in Williamsville and other places. And so I think that um, Buffalo's community right now, I mean, right now in, in Buffalo, New York, but the black community is has, is rated as having the worst black business in the country, but is among the very highest in, in charitable giving and donations. In other words, we've learned how to ask for help, but we haven't learned how to do enough of helping ourselves. But do you really think, and, and I'll get to the helping ourselves part, because that's interesting to me, but do you really think you mentioned Williamsville or Grand Island? that the person there was touched by the shooting enough to motivate change. Yes, I do. Now, I went to Ken Maurice. I'll tell you, that's the class of 72 Bulldogs um, way back in the day. But uh, I don't think it would have happened in 72, but I think people were touched enough to, uh, just like with the blizzard of 22, 23, I think people were moved enough to say, i got to think beyond just my little community. There was enough caring and sharing. Uh, the response to giving the, the support was enough to say, we, we need to do better and we can do better. We will do better. Now, what about the second part of your equation, the idea that there are things the community can possibly do for themselves? Well, you know, I was talking with uh, a very good friend of mine, Tom Buford. He's the president and CEO of the Urban League. 
the fact that they're going to establish an Urban League $25 million headquarters on Buffalo's East Side, maybe on Jefferson Avenue, for instance, uh, while all while keeping their corporate headquarters on East Genesee Street and Main Street. The fact that Jefferson Avenue does not have to be a wasteland, doesn't have to be uh, something from way back that can really be great and thrive, just like Hurdle Avenue, just like Elmwood Avenue, Forever Elmwood, it can really come back and it can be something that everyone participates in. And I, I think that that's why we, we will this year uh, go in a different direction, uh, do something we've never done before. How does that happen? How do we create another Elmwood Village? Well, you know, it, it takes the, the entrepreneurial uh, vision. We right now, there are about uh, somewhere around 500 established African-American businesses in Buffalo. We need to have 2,500 businesses in Buffalo from Buffalo's black community. We, we need to have uh, a, a vibrant uh, East Side Chamber of Commerce. We need to have uh, investors coming into Buffalo. And not just that, but people in Buffalo, not just looking for jobs and employment, but uh, launching out like Joseph Hodge did in 1789. Our first businessman in Buffalo was a black man. I think we can do it here. I think we can rebuild not just the East Side, case in point, on Broadway Avenue, Dave, when you go over there on Fillmore, you know, you see blocks of blight. Uh, the whole block's just torn down. Just, but, but right now, Fillmore District is the second fastest growing district in the city. And I know as chairman of the Commission on Reapportionment, this population shift is amazing. But from Broadway, from Central Terminal to the Broadway Market, there's about $250 million of investment going on right now. And uh, who would have thought that would have happened? Are you saying city and county investment or, or private or all of the above? All of the above. But specifically, though, this, this, that $250 million is the investment, uh, public investment, in the terminal and the Broadway market. I think it will spur uh, 10 times that in private investment and capital venture. You're going to see Broadway, yes, Broadway Fillmore uh, thriving again. And that's an example. Little victories like that all over uh, the east side of Buffalo will mark a difference. But the investment on Broadway is not the public dollars going into Jefferson. Correct. It's not. Um, I think that that can happen. I mean, there, there are, in, in Buffalo's east side, not only are there 500 businesses, there's 125 of black lawyers and 50 black doctors. Uh, there's... Uh, uh, 250 churches and, and about 20 masjids. Uh, there, there's, there's a tremendous capital and about $800 million in gross community spending on Buffalo's east side. Uh, but we, uh, we really can't think of ourselves as uh, just something that can't do. We got to have a can-do philosophy, and I think that's where we'll be. I almost hesitate to say that this program has oftentimes looked at the challenges of the east side to the point that maybe we are more pessimistic than you are. You're really optimistic, more so than a lot of, I think, other guests that we've had on this program. Tell me why. Well, I, I'm a product of a, a, a home that had the support of the community. My mother, Mary Fisher, was the first real black real estate broker in upstate New York. Uh, she had a vision to launch 
a real estate company. She was working for SealTest, first black in management. To leave that great job and invest in, in, in a business in Fisher Realty, um, she had the support of the community. And uh, she had, uh, there was no ECIDA, there was no SBA, there was no Buffalo, uh, you know, renovations. There, there was just a, a vision and, 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 and guts and determination. Uh, my dad actually had a cab stand and he also worked at Westinghouse hardworking people with a vision. They came from the South. And uh, I'm optimistic because if they could do it, then we can do it now. Uh, we had hotels uh, in, in Buffalo, uh, certainly in Dan Montgomery's, and I know you know about the Little Harlem, but the Williams brothers had hotels. Buffalo had so much. And um, I don't know exactly what happened, but certainly losing 28,000 people in 1978 when Bethlehem still closed. And those kind of, the, the inability to convert from a industrial community to a more uh, financial service, technology-based kind of community, we, we lost ground. Buffalo lost half its population. And the black community of Buffalo lost half its population. It's difficult to recover from that. Um, and so many young people, I mean, my children, uh, very, very blessed uh, to have children who've done very well, but they left the area. And uh, it hurts me to say I've got two beautiful daughters uh, in D.C., uh, and I got another daughter in Atlanta. Um, my kids left this area because there really wasn't opportunities here, and, and I hope to do something about that. I'm optimistic because I think Buffalo is going to come back, and I do make a prediction that Buffalo will become a great example of resurgence, a resurgent community. Because uh, we've seen what other communities have done. Atlanta, which was considered the mecca, Dave, of black business development, uh, has been gentrified. It's, it's not Atlanta, what else? Midtown really gentrified that. And so a lot of people that were part of Atlanta have moved out in the far-reaching suburbs. I've talked to people who live there, and uh, the, the consensus, or at least the theory that they put forth is, you don't have the, the stratification. You have uh, low-income blacks and rich blacks. You don't have an east side that is exclusively black. You have neighborhoods that are just completely integrated. That Atlanta is really much more uh, heterogeneous, mixed. Uh, you know, we, we have something that Atlanta doesn't have. We, we've seen what their mistakes are. We see what their, um, what their errors are. I mean, right now they have 28 different counties in metropolitan Atlanta, they're about, uh, I guess, 10 times the size of Buffalo. And so you have a million uh, African-Americans in Atlanta compared to 150,000 here. And of course they have great examples, but the, 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 the gap uh, is, is about the same. The, the income gap is about the same in Atlanta as it is here. You know, just you have more people and so you have more uh, success stories but I think we can learn from that. We can really learn from those cities as a late blooming city. And I believe Buffalo, which has the, I'll just tell you a couple things. One, we have the most uh, fresh water in the world. We have the most hydropower in North America. And we have a border uh, with Canada right here in Buffalo. We have the terminus of the Erie Canal, the Underground Railroad, 
We have great, great, great history. We're positioned, and I, and I mean for everyone, not just well, for uh, investors from other places. It's a great opportunity right here. Those natural gifts, tragically what is going on in, in the uh, West out there in California and uh, out there in Arizona, those places, they don't have the resources that we do have. And I think we are, in time, uh, we're going to utilize that. And I think Buffalo, if it understands we're all in this together, uh, we'll rise together. What do you think is the biggest challenge that prevents your optimistic view from being implemented? Mm, I think the biggest challenge is um, the economic development. The biggest challenge, the, the, the greatest struggle is going to be in the, uh, the business community. Uh, it's the area that's most challenged. Today, Buffalo does not have a black-owned bank it doesn't have a black-owned hospital, and it doesn't have a black-owned grocery store. Why? Why is that, Dave? What has happened that today we don't have those kind of resources? What's wrong with us that we don't? And I think we we've got to talk to places like Fedco Foods in Chicago and other places and talk to those executives about what do we need to do here. Um, but the fact that we don't even have a black-owned grocery store. So the, the, the overall Charlie Fisher message, is, as we wind up here, would be, like, like your parents, take the leap. Take the leap of faith, absolutely. Like Joseph Hodge did. Uh, believe in something and go for it. There's nothing that we can't achieve. And I think that uh, in 20 years from now, you're going to see uh, Buffalo's east side uh, having resurgence and something that everyone's participating in. Uh, that it will be something different from some of these other cities. And I think we're going to be very proud. I think we're going to be very successful. And we are standing on the shoulders of those like my parents who went before us. That's Charlie Fisher sharing some history today. This is Buffalo What's Next Producers Picks, a second chance to hear some of the interviews from our daily program on WBFO. Full episodes are on demand at WBFO.org. Still to come, the Reverend Kaiser Pointer. I grew up right on Carlton Street. So when I was a kid, there were apple trees, there were peach trees, there were orange trees. Those streets are not named by accident. But first, Jay Moran with Ashley Barr, a family sociologist at the University at Buffalo. As a family sociologist entering this picture, I think, okay... We know that racism and discrimination specifically influences health, but we live our lives interdependently, right? right? And so how might discrimination infiltrate families, right, and family relationships? How might it spread its effects, spread from one partner to another, right? We know that, that we see these, uh, quote, contagion effects, uh, and that's a term you use, stress. Stress contagion, yeah. Uh, it's a way of stress proliferating from one individual to another. And we see this in in other um, areas. So, uh, for instance, we know that when uh, a student is stressed out, we can actually measure that in a teacher and vice versa. And so there's emerging research suggesting that that racial discrimination also transfers from 
the effects of racial discrimination, the stress that it causes, transfers from one partner to another. Um, and so with the data that I use, the Family and Community Health Study, it's, it's really nuanced, right? And so we have data from two generations of uh, family members, a, a parent generation and a, a kid generation at the time that the study started, but now a young adult generation, and their romantic partners. And so there are really nuanced data of uh, experiences of everyday discrimination and really nuanced measures of health. And so using this fancy statistical technique called dyadic data analysis, you can look at those two effects simultaneously, the effect of discrimination on your own health and the effect of your partner's experience of, this, of discrimination on your health. And of course, back to the original statement that, that we are seeing this impact yeah. on, the, on the partner as well. You, like you said, though, nuanced look at racial discrimination because racial discrimination is a big part of this study. It is the key part of this study. Right. Uh, so explore that for me. Tell me what that might mean. There are lots of ways to measure racial discrimination and racism more broadly. And so it, what this particular study does is it, it uses a measure of what we call uh, everyday discrimination. It spans from um, what you would typically think of as discriminatory events, like uh, being hassled by the police, for instance, being followed around in a in a store, being suspected, uh, viewed suspiciously when when shopping, uh, all the way to what we typically call nowadays microaggressions. Sure. Uh, and there are eleven of those items that we ask respondents about. Okay. Four different measures from four different people of racial discrimination. And then we can link that to their objective and subjective measures of health. So we're not looking at the impacts of redlining or disinvested schools or anything along those lines. We're looking at specific happenings inside an individual's yes. life. Yes. Perceptions of uh, racial discrimination, of uh, sort of everyday racial discrimination. Um, so I think what you bring up is an excellent point, right? And what I try to note in the paper is two things, right? We're we are underestimating the effects of racial discrimination on health because we're all, we tend to only look at individual effects, right? The effects of your discrimination, your experiences of discrimination on your own health. And here I show that we also have to extend those out to to family members, romantic partners in this case. But also, even that is an underestimation of the effect of racism generally because you're missing that institutional layer of discrimination. You're missing um, structural inequalities. So I think that that is an important context to keep in mind when when looking at not just this individual study, but any individual study looking at uh, the effects of discrimination on anything, right? Is that what you're actually measuring is a very limited view of uh, what Carol calls mundane extreme environmental stress. We were talking before we went on the air and you've done other studies that look at race and, and their impact on, on health and things along those lines. And with that, you have a, a sense of making sure that when we're getting into these discussions, when you're getting into these discussions or have them with other people, to make sure that there's an expansion of the narrative, that we don't break things down and to create new stereotypes. Right. You know, a lot of my work focuses on the stressors experienced by uh, Black families. Uh, you know, we were talking before we went on air about this sort of narrative of the broken black family. Right. Um, and it's it's a very popular narrative. 
uh, you know, some of my other work shows that racial discrimination not only erodes health, uh, your own and your romantic partners, but also um, can erode uh, the actual relationship, right? So those couples who experience greater levels of discrimination, um, we actually see increased relationship instability, even before marriage and kids and all of those things, right? This is among young adults. Okay. And so I think it's important to place that in a broader context to not fuel this narrative of uh, broken Black families, right? Because as I mentioned, it's primarily a false one, so we have to sort of hold two things as true at, at one time. One is that Black families face a lot of external pressures that have to do with racism, right? Not just the historical legacy of racism, but contemporary realities of racism. So we have to acknowledge the ways that these external pressures uh, and structural racism, institutional racism, individual discrimination, the ways that they disrupt Black families and the ways that they make it really difficult for Black families to function, right, in a, in a healthy way. The other thing that we have to hold true is the ways that Black families adapt and respond and cope with and come up with really creative solutions to that environment, right, to those external stressors. Both of those things can be true, and I think it's important to, to always point out the adaptations that Black families make and the ways that they, they cope with these things. Uh, and some of the things, um, quite frankly, are, are really, really healthy. Right. And other, you know, non-Black families can pull upon some of those things. So like expanded kin networks, right? Those can be really healthy for social support, for uh, raising kids, for all of those things. We also know, for instance, that although Black fathers are more likely to live outside the home, uh, live away from their kids, for instance, than white fathers, they're more involved in their kids' lives than white fathers who live outside the home. Huge. Like you said, yeah. uh, I think we can blame media or whatever, but a, ge a generality that has been handed down and generally accepted. So they're much more adept at sort of navigating family complexity compared to white families. And so, you know, I, it's really important to point those things out uh, at the same time that we're focusing on the stressors that Black families experience. Like, both things need to be part of that narrative. We're talking with uh, Professor Ashley Barb. She is a family sociologist and associate professor at the Department of Sociology here at the University of Buffalo. We're at her office, as a matter of fact, at uh, Park Hall. Let's go back to the, 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 the study, the stress contagion, and how it might impact a partner. What, what are we seeing then? What, what's... What's showing up in one partner or what is happening to one partner and then how is it impacting the the romantic partner? So the the how um, is not very well understood. Okay. So I'll start with the basics here. So in the data itself, what we see is that one partner's of exp experience of discrimination is um, related to reduced health in themselves and their partner, right? The how, there's lots of speculation about the how, right, how that happens. The um, sort of most robust hypothesis is that your own experience of, of stress, right, um, in the form of discrimination will impact your own mental health, your own mood, your own volatility, right? And therefore, you'll have negative interactions with your partner. Um, and if you constantly have negative interactions with your partner, or even not constantly, but repeatedly have negative interactions with your partner, it will erode relationship satisfaction. And we know that that's an important predictor of health, right? Relationship satisfaction, social support. The interesting thing about this study is that I uh, control for relationship satisfaction. 
Um, and we're seeing these effects uh, while sort of wiping out that effect of relationship dissatisfaction. So that's not causing this here. Okay. And so other plausible mechanisms include, um, well, there's there's a physiological one that they're still, you know, uh, doing a lot of research on to figure out what this physiological contagion is because it is really like a, a physiological process. So we see this with, with mothers and infants, right? So if a mother is stressed, no matter what she's doing, it tends to be contagious for the infant, right? You'll see sort of a physiological response in the infant. So that's direct physiological contagion. I'm not sure that we can say that that's the mechanism here. But there are other plausible mechanisms like romantic partners worry about one another. <clears throat> worry is related to health, right? So if my partner is experiencing a lot of discrimination, um, even if it's not affecting my relationship satisfaction with that partner, I would worry about that partner. The other plausible mechanism here, again, I don't measure any of these, so these are all speculation at this point, but the other plausible mechanism is a partner's experience of discrimination increases the burden of support. If your burden of support is higher and your partner is less able to give you support that you need because they're dealing with their own stuff, right, then that could erode health. What can we do once we understand this? I mean, one thing that we're finding, I think, on this particular programming, a program, I should say, is I think as we talk to people, community members, people who grow up uh, on Buffalo's East Side, we're hearing more about their lives and their daily lives and what they are, whether they're the, 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 the good and the maybe not so good. And I think it's helping to, to bring a better understanding of our community. What about, though, from what you're seeing here, how could this help? whether it's just our listener, understand the reality of discrimination or perhaps how it could be used to influence policy. One of the biggest takeaways here, which I, I don't think that your listeners need to be told, but one of the biggest takeaways is, is that we are not in this post-racial world, right? We still need to be very much paying attention to how racism infiltrates people's lives and impacts people's lives and, you know, not just, you know, the daily ins and outs, but long-term trajectories of health, right? These have substantial implications for um, the way that people live their lives and future trajectories. And then second, figuring out what we do about that. You know, as a sociologist, I wouldn't necessarily advocate for approaches that focus on the, like, changing hearts and minds. Like, Yes, we need to reduce discrimination, but that's actually really hard to do. You know, there's a ton of work suggesting that the strategies that we use to do that may actually backfire. Really? Um, yeah. So, for instance, there was just a new paper. I forget the author of it, but uh, looking at it was a the Norwegian Football Federation. And they sent out this uh, it was an experimental study, which is the you know gold standard for establishing cause and effect here. And. And so they sent out this um, this flyer or notice or letter or something to to football coaches, just indicating that um, hey, you know, we need to Im improve inclusivity and we want you to take seriously all applicants to to your football programs and things like that. It was a you know kind letter that you would think would you know perk their ears up for you know being on the lookout for addressing their own bias and things like that. It actually exacerbated um, racial inequality, and they they then they then later sent out fake applications, right? And uh, it exacerbated the discrimination against the foreign applicants. 
And and so we see that in other studies in the U.S. as well, that some of these things that we think will, you know, minimize racial bias, reduce discrimination, um, have really short-term effects or or backfire. And so, you know, I... I think that reducing discrimination, changing hearts and minds, great. If we can do it, let's do that. But I think the biggest bang for your buck here is working on, you know, institutional changes, structural changes that restrict people's ability to implement racial, to to enact racial bias or to act upon racial bias. And then also investing in community supports and resources to sort of cope and confront racial discrimination. I think that those are probably the the biggest bang for our buck here. Are you surprised by the levels uh, that you that you find here that of of the impact of discrimination of how discrimination has this tentacle effect on on society? Quite honestly, no. If you pay attention to black scholars, right, they have been signaling this for for decades, right? That we need to sort of expand our scope here and look at these tentacles, as you say, right? And that we we only hit the iceberg if uh, if we're focused on individual effects or these even, you know, just one indicator of discrimination because it's racism is a lot more than that. Sure. People of color have been and black people in particular, right, have been have been signaling this for for a really long time. But now we're starting to measure these partner effects and we're seeing them across a, a whole host of of stressors, not just discrimination. We're seeing them, you know, we see, we now see these contagion effects of criminal justice contact, right? How that infiltrates families and spreads across family members and impacts health and well-being of not just the person who's incarcerated, but the whole family unit. And the final question is one that gets asked a lot on this uh, this program, and you've got a lot of work to do with your research, but I'm interested to think, and if you don't necessarily want to go down this road, I can understand it. Sure. Do you end up hope for racial issues of our society, that they can be overcome. I mean, boy, when you you lay it out there, it's it's deep stuff. It's and it's long standing and long impacting that we're talking about here. Well, I mean, I think as a person in the world, you you have to right. Like, what do you what do you do otherwise? And you know, I say that from a very privileged position, right? Like racially, class-wise, all of that. Uh, So I think, yes, because you have to. But I also think that we're having conversations today that we haven't had before, right? Like people are seriously talking about reparations. I'm not sure that we've seen serious political discussions about reparations. We've seen whole social movements, right? The Black Lives Matter movement. We are sort of seeing... There are elements of positive change, I think. I think you have to sort of have hope and think about something's not working, what can we do differently? Ashley Barr from the Sociology Department at UB. And we close with the Reverend Kaiser Pointer from Agape Fellowship Baptist Church. He talks with Dave Debo about some of the neighborhood poverty walks he takes UB medical students on. What we want students to discover and learn is, you know, when you're giving medical advice, um, who are you giving it to? And what are the circumstances that those people live in? And when you tell people, get exercise, is that possible? Is the built environment, and I'm asking this somewhat rhetorically, obviously, is the built environment an obstacle to health? Oh, absolutely. Buffalo is a old 
Rust Belt City. Structures in this city, on average, are more than 89 years of age in the city of Buffalo. And old houses have old house problems. I spoke a while ago to Dr. Myron Glick, who runs the Jericho Road Community Health Center, and he had something interesting to say that um, as part of their screening, when a new refugee comes to their practice, they will do a lead screening. And these people often move into substandard housing, and a month or two later, he does another lead screening and finds the levels just go up incredibly. Levels that they wouldn't have necessarily had in Africa or Afghanistan or wherever they're coming from, but levels that suddenly escalate as soon as they start living in the poorer areas of Buffalo. And so when you are talking with medical students, um, their concern is health and how people are living. But they have to know where people are and what the structures they're living in. So old houses have the problems of old houses. Lead, lead-based paint, radon, asbestos. So you name it. There, in that dwelling, is all kinds of hazards that impede good health. Is my premise correct that they don't see these things unless you point them out? Uh, do the scales eventually fall off their eyes? Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, because most medical students are middle class and upper middle. That, in and of itself, means that these are young people who, by and large, have never seen a substandard dwelling. What else do you show them? Are well, there things that you point to beyond housing? That makes them say, wow, I just, I didn't think of that. Well, sure. Um, You know, asthma and COPD and the whole spectrum are a huge concern. And in cities, you have automobiles, automobiles, automobiles. And so they are giving the emissions off all day long. Look around. Where are the trees? Are trees, bushes, shrubs, and planted environment readily available and obvious? And often they aren't. You know, when I was a kid growing up, there were trees everywhere. And and I'm a Buffalo boy. The canopy of trees in Buffalo, the first time I flew in 1972, the canopy of trees, I didn't believe I was coming into Buffalo because I'd never seen it from the air. From the air. So when I looked down, um, it took the longest time to see something that was built that wasn't covered by trees. There is a reason, too, if we're talking about trees, there's a reason why the fruit belt is called the, the fruit, fruit belt. belt. That's right. Because once upon a time, there, there were, were fruit trees there. everywhere. Yeah. And, and, and even when I was a kid growing up in the fruit belt, because um, I grew up right on Carlton Street. So when I was a kid, there were apple trees, there were peach trees, there were orange trees. Those streets are not named by accident. That's not the buffalo we fly into today. right. right. Dutch elm disease did a lot of the damage there. A lot of damage and then multiple storms. But then I think you could argue that the replacement effort, okay, Dutch elm took the trees out, storms took the trees out. Where have the trees been replaced? Exactly. And and when you're talking about the poorest neighborhoods, trees have not been replaced. I live in University Heights. I'm, I'm a member of the block club. Our block club, after the 2006 storm, on my street, on Minnesota Avenue, we have made a concerted effort over the last decade and a half to replant every year. But we are a block club of um, well-educated, middle-class people, and we just said, look, this street looks terrible. <laughs> we need to fix this. So we went to trees and planted. And trees are pretty expensive. A sapling is about 100 bucks. So if you're talking to a poor family, pfft, 
they're not about yeah. to spend $100 on a tree. What else do you point out to these medical students along the journey? Schools. We point out that those schools are there. Why is that important? Because schools are where young people begin their journey to replace us. And I really need some young person to come along and do what I do because I have, Dave, I have no intention of doing this until I die. That's simply not going to work for me. And someone has to do what I'm doing. Someone has to do what you're doing. So we point out schools because schools are critically important to the beginning of the journey. And how do we prepare young people to be in those schools? And what is the relationship between the school and the neighborhood that it's in? You just went where I thought you would go. The neighborhood school doesn't necessarily exist the way it did once upon a time. But there is also an increasing movement to make sure that schools are, to some degree, neighborhood centers, places for those wraparound services that aren't just reading and writing and arithmetic. Those are some of the things because um, a lot of assets have been divested out of the poorest communities in our in our city. Um, a lot of it because there were adverse policies that were put in place. World War II, those policies were not dismantled. Those are policies that were largely put in place in the 1920s and 30s and often as a result of the Great Depression. We've not dismantled any of them. You're talking redlining. I'm talking about redlining and other policies that, I mean, planning, city planning is done decades out. And so projections about what will and will not be there are already in play right now for, say, 2050. And we're not talking about that in neighborhood meetings. But we should be. Attitudinally, talk about what these students experience. Is it truly a revelation? Oh, gosh, Reverend Pointer, I had no idea. Well, one of the things that happens in in the class that we teach at the medical school, it's a clinical practice of medicine one class. So it's connected directly to what students need to learn to become clinicians. And it's part of what they need to be able to pass the boards at the end of the second year. Mm -hmm. So it's a critically important exercise. And yes, they are learning. And not only are they learning, but what we are learning as we're looking at the data from the time we've been teaching this class, is that they become the bright scholars and leaders in their class. I want to go back to something you said earlier in the program, the idea that poor kids obviously don't go to medical school. It costs money. Right. Can something be done to at least recruit more of them to the field? Oh, yeah, easily. Um, We've got to be intentional, though. It cannot be um, someone saying, oh, yeah, I hear you. That's sad. And then go away. No. We have to be intentional. We have to deliberately insist on creating pipeline programs that actually give kids the kind of support early because, you know, to go to medical school, you really have to be pretty sharp in math and science. You also probably need to have an interest, which I imagine to some degree comes from a role model. Oh, absolutely. Um, Someone said long before we got here that it's very difficult for the mind to conceive what the eye has not seen. So it's difficult for students to imagine themselves being something they've never seen. Yeah. And they've never seen a black physician. It's hard to imagine being one. They've never seen a black attorney, a black judge. It's hard to imagine being one. So we've got to make sure that young people are exposed to the kind of role models early 
so that they can dream for themselves. And then, look, let's just help them with their dream. And similarly, you expose these students that you take on the walk to the conditions that they would be encountering. Do you encounter any people? Do you chat with folks? Intentionally. Okay. We intentionally There's that word again. <laughs> we intentionally set up some community conversations with members of the community. Every student in the class has a family who lives in the community who mentors them through the entire semester. Wow. They spend time with them. They sit at the dinner table with that family. They talk with them about their health and their health issues and and, and the whole family. Mother, father, children. So they get a complete wrap around and an immersion. What do you think they learn? What What is the biggest comment or topic that uh, gets discussed around that dining room table? Well, the most important thing is they learn how alike they are. You know, one of the things that eating does is it takes away all issues of superiority because um, hunger doesn't care who you are. Yeah. That segues perfectly into a topic I want to get to on the other side of the break. Uh, this program has four months talked about issues of segregation. And one person said, Dave, it's real simple. Go have a meal at a restaurant on the east side um, because that will open up your perspectives and your doors and food might take away some of that hesitancy or that fear. Um, And yet, I'm not sure that that's not overly simplistic. In the neighborhood, on the east side, there is, regardless of the best intentions, a lot of segregation. How the heck do we get over that? Segregation was intentional. So if we're going to desegregate, it's going to... It too has to be, here's the word again. It has to be intentional. It cannot be a grand idea on on a piece of paper and a plan. You really have to incentivize it. Um, We've got to remove the barriers. Um, We've got to teach people their sameness intentionally make sure they know and understand it's a it's really difficult for people to know and understand people that they don't know and understand how much of it is a physical barrier the housing stock on the east side is more accessible to poor people than the rich housing stock well maybe Uh, not so much all right (laughs) because rent is hyperinflated all all over the city but what we what we could do is intentionally make sure that the vast majority of people who live here are homeowners. So we could incentivize that. But, you know, we we will say, well, that's not the function of government. Well, it was the function of government to give us segregation. Why isn't it the function of government to dismantle it intentionally, deliberately, and actually not just talk about it? More than just housing, though, I think it has to be some sort of attitudinal change. And I know you've talked about people recognizing that people are just people. But talking about that and getting that to happen, to my mind, are, are, are miles apart. Well, I think um, if we're going to begin with folks, y- you and I's age, we're wasting time because they're already <laughs> entrenched. They believe s- what they believe regardless of— They're their ways. Um, they've staked out some political foolishness. Um, you know, we're not talking to them. It's our young people. If you look at kids in a classroom, they don't really care. They have no um, concept of race the way we teach race in the United States. So that's where we begin. 
And we really need to begin by making sure that the education being accessed is equal for all of them. And then those classrooms, we need to be intentional about making sure that everyone is represented there. And then we need to sit those kids down at meals regularly. And I think that's probably easy to accomplish in a geography that is diverse. Right. Um, but I think of, and, and again, I'm of a different age, uh, I think of my own high school upbringing, and uh, the joke was, oh, yeah, our high school is integrated. We have a Jewish family. I think it's easy to have your integrated classroom where you'll have an exchange of ideas and an understanding of someone else's humanity if you're drawing from a pool that is, to some degree, already integrated. How do you do that in the Elmas and the Orchard Parks and the, I don't know, arcades and Darien? Well, you, you have to make it um, so that people are welcome. The last thing I want to do, I've heard you tell this story before. You and I have talked on numerous occasions. When you were growing up in the Fruit Belt, yep. you had neighbors. You I had did. three Jeffreys. Tell me the story, and I love this story. Yep. Tell me the story of the three Jeffreys. Well, you know, I come from a big family, and I'm a boy, and I was the first boy in the family, so I was always the rambunctious, disruptive one. And, of course, boys find other boys to do these things with. So I had three friends, all named Jeffrey. Um, and so my sisters, when they would come to the door f asking for me, they would say, Jeffrey's here. And I'd say, which Jeffrey? And they would then decide they needed to identify Jeffrey. So they did. Um, there, was, there was white Jeffrey, because, of course, that's obvious. There was black Jeffrey, again, obvious. And then there was Jeffrey, who I often went to synagogue with on Saturday. Because so he, he was, was Jewish. He was Jewish, And Jeffrey. they would say, it's black Jeffrey, it's white Jeffrey, or it's Jeffrey who's Jewish. And then I'd know exactly who was at the door. Which Jeffrey was standing at the door. Which Jeffrey was standing at the door. And that also colored how, I, how quickly I moved because, you know, as with all friendships, there is a hierarchy. Yeah. So, and, and that changes all the time, too. Oh, it does change. This it, week it might be Jewish Jeffrey. Exactly. Next week it might be black Jeffrey. Exactly. Okay. And it depends on what we were going to get into. Because <laughs> <laughs> boys often have... Special talents that, that <laughs> exactly. they bring. Exactly. Exactly. So bring your mother into the equation. Uh, my mother, she always would say, oh, look, um, all I need you guys to do is keep in mind the rules. And she would say, if you can't do it in front of a police officer, skip it. She said, if you can't do it in front of Jesus, skip it. And if you can't do it and be safe, skip it. And she said, well, that was her thing with us. Be safe, be moral, be legal. So one day on the stoop, Jeffrey shows up and you say to your mom, which Jeffrey is it? And she would say, boy, get out here. <laughs> I'm not your sisters. The Reverend Kinzer Pointer from Magape Fellowship Baptist Church. Each weekday, Buffalo What's Next amplifies the voices of those without resources. We are a podcast. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or listen each morning on WBFO at 10 and each night at 9. I'm Thomas O'Neill White. Thanks for joining us.